Well, good morning, Athens First United Methodist Church. It is good to see you, good to be with you on this beautiful first Sunday of the month of March. It is also the third Sunday of the season of Lent. And what a joy it is to be in worship with you together. And how about that choir, huh? Yeah. I told our 930 service, the thing I love most about that anthem is the fact that if you weren't awake before it, you were (laughs) definitely awake after it. And uh, there is nothing better that a preacher can have than a room full of really awake people. Um, So with that, it is good to be with you. We are in week three of our Lenten sermon series. It's called The Twelve. And if you've been with us, you know that what we're doing each of the weeks of Lent is we're doing an in-depth study of one of Jesus' 12 disciples. In week one, we started with Simon Peter. Week two, Pastor Natalie helped us look at the disciple John. And today, we will look at the disciple James. There was uh, uh, a lot of thought that went into this uh, series, a thought that, that kind of made me think, what are we trying to do here as we make our way towards Easter? As we follow Jesus, what what is it that we could learn about what it means to be a disciple? And then it dawned on me, who better to learn what it means to be a disciple than Jesus' most faithful disciples, the 12 people that walked with him, talked with him, ate with him, and walked all the way to the cross with him during his three years of life and ministry. So today, we will look at a, a story that I think tells us a lot about the disciple James. We're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that comes from the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We'll start with verse 51. Uh, This is a story in which Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem by going through a place called Samaria. It's a place where they have confrontation with a village of Samaritans. And one thing that I want you to note is that right after this story, we're not going to talk about it, we won't get to it today, but it is interesting to note that just a few verses later in chapter 10, what parable does Jesus tell us? But the parable of the Good Samaritan. Keep that in the back of your mind as we listen to how Jesus wants his disciples, namely James and John, to deal with these Samaritans. Luke says, As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent his messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked to them, saying, and and then... He and his disciples went on to another village. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts gathered here together be holy and acceptable in thy sight now and forever. Thou who art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if this morning... When you heard or you saw that today's sermon was going to be on Jesus' disciple, James, I cannot tell you how much pride and joy it would bring to my heart if the first thing you thought was, which one? 
Because in so doing, you would illustrate to me that you are well aware of the fact, you are biblically aware of the fact that within Jesus' 12 disciples, there was not just one disciple named James, but there were actually two. There was James, the son of Zebedee, and then there was James, the son of Alphaeus. Or as they later became known as down throughout the annals of church history, James the Greater and James the Lesser. Now today, we're going to be focusing on James the Greater. The reason being is because, quite honestly, we don't know anything about James the Lesser. (laughs) In fact, we only know three things. We know that his name was James. We know that his father's name was Alphaeus. And we know that he was, in fact, a disciple of Jesus. Other than that, though, we actually don't know any information about this disciple of Jesus. In fact, that's how he earns that, that nickname throughout church history. He was given what I think we can all agree is a most unfortunate moniker. He's been known as James the Lesser, which is just terrible when you think about it, because we might as well have just called him James the Nobody, right? You know, versus James the Somebody, or, or James the Important, and there's James the Totally Not Important. But if there's anything that James the Lesser can take comfort in this morning's sermon about. It's the fact that when it comes to James the Greater, we really don't know that much about him either. Which is kind of interesting when you think about the fact that, as Pastor Natalie noted last week, he was one of Jesus' inner three disciples. He, along with his brother John and with Peter, they were three disciples that Jesus handpicked to be a part of some really important ministry and some really important events. So we know that James was considered prominent amongst the 12 disciples. We know that he had an important role amongst the 12 disciples. And yet, for whatever reason, the New Testament honestly doesn't tell us all that much more about him. I mean, we know that he was a fisherman from the town of Capernaum. We know that his father's name was Zebedee. And we know that he was one of the first disciples to be called by Jesus. What we also know, though, is that when it comes to his brother John and himself, Jesus decided to give them a most unique nickname. Because if you look in Mark chapter 3, you'll find that Jesus referred to them as Boanerges, which translated means sons of thunder, or more literally, it means sons of rage. Now what most scholars agree is that the reason Jesus gave them this nickname had something to do with their personality. Like it was a reflection on who they were and the way they tended to act, which gives us some insight to think that they were probably a feisty couple of brothers, you know. They were the kind of people who had sort of a temper, and and, and if they got too angry, they were known to explode we get the sense that they were a very passionate uh, couple of brothers. And if there was ever a story that kind of highlights why they would have been given this very interesting moniker from Jesus, I think Luke chapter 9 fits the bill perfectly, because this is the story, of course, where James and John, the sons of thunder, ask Jesus if they can call down fire from heaven on a group of Samaritans. Now, 
If you were to ever take an introduction to New Testament course in seminary, one of the first things you would learn about this passage that we read this morning is the fact that this is one of the most decisive moments in Jesus' life. That starting in verse 51, you'll notice that Luke says, when it came time for Jesus to ascend into heaven, he resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. Meaning, he very purposely decided, this is where I'm going to go, and this is a part of my destiny. And what awaited him in Jerusalem? Well, it was the cross. And so that's why scholars tell us that if you ever wanted to separate the Gospel of Luke into two separate halves, that's where you would start. Chapter 9, verse 31. Because everything turns the moment Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem. So that's what he and his disciples do, according to Luke. He says that they went, and they started on this journey that lasts exactly 10 chapters long. And where did they start? Luke says that they started by going to a Samaritan village. Now note that that Luke did not say that Jesus and his disciples just happened to go to Samaria. He didn't say that they, like, got off on the wrong exit, looked around, and said, oh, look at where we are. Might as well do some ministry here while we're, while we're at it. No, this was a very intentional thing by Jesus. This was something that he intended for him and his disciples to do. So he sends some disciples forward to go into the village to get things ready for him. And when they get there, and they tell the Samaritans who's on his way, did you notice how they received them? Luke says that in so many words, they told them to get lost. (laughs) They basically shut the door in their face. They said, you're not welcome here. And if you ever wondered why, the answer is quite simple. It's because Jesus and his disciples were Jewish. And from the first century, and much, much earlier, Jews and Samaritans got along like cats and dogs. They could not stand one another, they were probably their worst enemies. And so the disciples go ahead and they start to make preparations for Jesus, and Luke says that they were immediately not welcome, they were immediately turned away, and rightfully so, they were pretty upset by that. Because to to have the door slammed in your face by someone is upsetting enough, but to have it slammed in your face by your most hated enemy? Well, that certainly takes it to another level. And so the disciples, as you can imagine, they're upset, they're mad, they're angry, but no one more so than the sons of thunder. (laughs) Because they immediately go to Jesus and they say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy these people? Now, on a scale of 1 to 10 of questions you could ask Jesus that are the most un-Jesus-like, I think this would be about a 92, right? Because it's a pretty extreme question to ask Jesus after not being welcomed into the village. And it gives you a reason to, to understand why the scholars believe that this is the story when Jesus started referring to them as the sons of thunder. But I also wonder that when they asked that question, when they said, Lord, 
Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy these people? I wonder how many of the other disciples wish that Jesus would have said yes. Because I think we've all been in situations like that before. I think we've all dealt with with those kinds of people before. People that absolutely infuriate us. Like what I'm talking about this morning is not some minor irritation, it's not some minor annoyance, but it's the kind of people that so get under your skin, that so anger you, that you want to just squash them like a bug. I think it can happen to any of us. It can even happen to, you know, preachers. For instance, uh, just yesterday I had the uh, joy and the privilege of going to the fair city of Macon, Georgia, a land flowing with potholes and highway construction. And I went to Macon, Georgia with the express purpose of attending the semifinals of the state basketball championship for high school boys basketball. It was held at Fort Valley State University. And so I get to the arena with my family, you know, we go inside and I see the ushers there. And so of course I ask them the question that I would ask any ushers in this kind of situation. I said, which way to the VIP section? (laughs) They said, the what now? I said, "Uh, very important pastors, hello. Uh, And they ushered me to the upper row behind one of the baskets, meaning I couldn't see anything. But what I could see from that vantage point were the two sides of the gymnasium. I could see our fans sitting over here, and I could see their fans sitting over here. And it was great. It was a fun game, a really exciting game, and for the most part, everyone was well-behaved, except one guy. Uh, He was a fan on the other team, and he was seated right in the front row. And I don't know how else to describe this guy except to say that he had the spiritual gift of being obnoxious, (laughs) like to the end of the green, because he was so annoying the entire game. He wouldn't sit down. And the whole game, he's just jawing at our fans. Like, he is making this person. He's pointing at people and jawing at them and talking to them. Not only that, but when our cheerleaders went out to do their little routine during halftime, he booed them the entire time. Now, I can see booing other players, but the cheerleaders, really? So he was not, he was not on my good side. But then he just kept going. And so throughout the whole game, he's standing up and he's, you know, gesturing and doing all this stuff. And every time we would miss a shot, he would laugh at us and he would point at the fans. And if we made a turnover, he would look at us with a big, you know, these big gestures like boo-hoo. So we get to the fourth quarter. We're down by five with three minutes to go. And I, I prayed two prayers. The first prayer was, oh, Lord, would you please allow us to come back and win this game? The second prayer was, oh, Lord, would you let me please call down fire from heaven (laughs) and destroy this fool of a fan sitting in the front row? Well, God being God, he did not grant me that second prayer, but I will tell you, he granted me the first one. And it never felt so good. 
I mean, I have never felt so satisfied as to when our fans all looked at him and went like this. <laughs> Not the most Jesus-like reaction, but still, but still, I think we all know what that's like. Right? We all know what it's like to have people, whether it's a perfect stranger or somebody in our life that absolutely drives us crazy, makes us want to spit nails. And if we're honest, sometimes they make us do things that are counter to our own character. Well, that's what happened with James and John. These Samaritan people rejected him for whatever reason, and they go to Jesus and they say, Lord, would you, would you like us to call down fire from heaven and to destroy these people? And if there was ever a person who would have been justified in granting them permission, it would have been Jesus. Because just think about what he's been doing up until this point in the Gospel of Luke. He's been doing nothing but good. He's been doing nothing but traveling and, and talking and preaching and teaching and healing and, and, and serving and helping people. He's sharing the good news with everyone that he comes in contact with. And then he comes to this Samaritan village and you're going to slam the door in his face? You're going to be inhospitable to the Son of God? It's ludicrous. Which means that if Jesus had said, you know what, James and John, not a bad idea. Why don't you go ahead? Have at it, boys. Uh, I'm going to let you do it this one time. I think he would have been justified. But to that, Luke says that instead of giving them permission, he simply turned, rebuked them, and they went on to another village, which I believe was Jesus' way of saying to the sons of thunder, uh, guys, that's not the way we do things in my kingdom. And that's not the way you're going to do things if you're going to be followers of me. Because you see, uh, what we do will never, ever, ever be motivated by things like rage and revenge and retribution. No, we will only ever be motivated by love. Which means that Jesus' mission when he came to earth was not to offer us what we deserve, but rather he came to offer us what we could never deserve, and that is God's grace, God's forgiveness, and God's love. That's why whenever I see one of those signs at a football game that somebody inevitably holds up that says John 3.16, I want so badly to go and to stand next to them and hold another sign that says, and verse 17, because I think they're equally as powerful, because of course John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. But I also think verse 17 is equally as powerful because what does that one say? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. Jesus didn't come to give us what we deserve. He came to offer us that which we could never deserve. He came to offer us grace and forgiveness and love. You know what I figured out on my ride home last night? After all the steam had come out of my ears and, you know, I loosened my grip on the steering wheel just a little bit, um, I realized that that guy in the front row he was a Samaritan to me. I mean, not literally. Obviously, he's not from there, but 
He was basically like a Samaritan. And I think we all have Samaritans in our lives. Because we all have those people who absolutely know how to get on our last nerve, who drive us up a wall, make us want to spit nails, who make us want to act in a way that is counter to our own Christian character. We have people who at times make us want to say, Lord, would you allow me to call down fire from heaven and destroy these people? So as we make our way towards Jerusalem, as we finish this season we call Lent, do you know what I think Jesus teaches us in this story about how to deal with the Samaritans in our lives? Three things. First thing Jesus teaches us is when it comes to the Samaritans that we have to deal with, our job as Christians is to not avoid them, but it's to go to them. Meaning our job is not to to kind of circumvent them or, or run from them or hide from them, but he went to them intentionally because Jesus calls us to love and to minister to everyone, even Samaritans. The second thing he teaches us is that reacting out of grace and mercy will always trump reacting out of revenge and retribution. Meaning that when we act out of anger and rage and, I'm just going to get that person, there will come a point in your life where you will likely regret it. You will think to yourself, why did I let my emotions get the best of me? I wish I hadn't done that. But I promise you this, there will never be a time where you ever regret acting with too much grace or out of too much love. The last thing that Jesus teaches us is this. When the Samaritans in our life test our patience, and oh, they will. Sometimes the most important thing we can do is just move on to another village. I I know it feels good to rage at somebody. I know it feels good to get revenge. But I think what Jesus would say is, just let it go. Drop it. Don't let them dictate to you how you're going to respond in a way that is counter to the way that God calls you to be as a Christian. Just let it go. Don't let it bother you. And move on to another village. Now, if you do those three things, I hate to tell you, but it's true, you're not going to earn a cool nickname like the Sons of Thunder. But that's okay. You know why? Because... According to the way I read my Bible, Jesus never called us sons or daughters of thunder. He called us to be sons and daughters of God. A God who never gives us what we deserve. But because of his love, because of his grace, because of his forgiveness, gives us only that which we could never deserve. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.